This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the Parenting and Family Support Centre at the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. This is the eighth and final episode of Families Under Pressure. It's been a great initiative showcasing research leaders and topics across the Life Course Centre and the ways that this evidence can inform better policy and practice to benefit children and families in need. This series was born out of recognition of the need to promote now more than ever, the importance of evidence-based responses to the unprecedented challenges of COVID-19, to assist families already in disadvantage, to ensure existing inequalities are not further entrenched, and to prevent new emerging forms of disadvantage from taking hold. Importantly, We've also looked at the opportunities that COVID-19 presents for major reform and reimagining the institutions and structures that govern the way we live and work. Families Under Pressure followed on from a 20-episode Parenting in a Pandemic series that aimed to steer parents and households through the uncharted waters of COVID-19. There was no playbook for families during this crisis. And I want to thank the Life Course Centre for their support for both of these podcast series, which I have hosted. For this final episode, we're going to do something a little different. Across the series, we've talked to a range of Life Course Centre leaders, sociologists, economists, criminologists, labour market experts, child development specialists, parenting experts, and more about their research and how it fits in to the Life Course perspective and how it can inform policy and practice. Today, we're talking all about the future, looking forward. Where do we go from here? How can we really shift the dial in addressing the impact of deep and persistent disadvantage in Australia? I'm joined by Professor Janine Baxter of the University of Queensland and Professor Deborah Cobb-Clark of the University of Sydney, Director and Deputy Director of the Life Course Centre, respectively, and both previous guests in this series. We're going to discuss future directions for the Centre's research, the new ways it will be investigating disadvantage, and the new research disciplines, data and methods it will employ to better support children and families. Janine and Deborah, it's great to have you both with us again. Thank you very much, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me again, Matt. Okay, well, look, after that longer than usual introduction, let's jump straight into it. All three of us were recently a part of the Life Course Centre's National Research Retreat. Uh, Janine, I wonder if you could give our audience a brief rundown of this event and why it was so important. Yes, thanks, Matt. So the research retreat was really the first official get-together of everybody in the Life Course Centre, we, the chief investigators, as you know, have been talking to each other a lot. Um, we developed the bid and we've, we've had many planning sessions, but the, the teams that the, the chief investigators bring haven't really had a chance to all get together. So the research retreat, and it was a two-day event, 
was really an opportunity for all of the teams to come together to plan the collaborations that we want to get underway and to really get to know each other and to um, you know work out where everybody fits in the centre and what, what people will be doing going forward. Of course, with COVID, it was a very tricky event to organise. And so we had a mix of face-to-face and online sessions, and that took quite a bit of planning. But in fact, it worked very well. The Life Course Centre, as you know, is across four universities, Queensland, University of Sydney, Melbourne and, and Western Australia. So we were geographically dispersed. So each of those universities were in their own location, but we were able to come together online to to run some sessions across the whole centre. And, and that was fantastic. And it worked amazingly well, even given the um, time difference. So quite a bit of planning went into it, but it really was a successful event. And so the way we ran it was a mix of presentations, people talking about research that's getting underway and what they have planned. But we also had some very informal sessions where the teams could come together just to reflect and to talk about what they might like to do in the centre going forward. And because of the the size of the centre and the fact that in the new centre we've brought in a lot of new people from very diverse disciplines, even expanding out beyond social science disciplines, these events are really important, particularly at the beginning of the centre, as we kickstart the research and plan the projects and, and get down to the ground of, of, doing, of doing the research for the centre. Thanks, Janine. Uh, what struck me at the retreat really was the clarity of these three programs of work that are being mapped out and how they really zone in on the individual context of disadvantage, but also their interconnectedness and how they feed into each other to address disadvantage at each level. Let's break each of these program areas down in a bit more detail. And I can bring you here in here, Deb, to give us your thoughts on the New People Research Program. What's that about? The New People Research theme is a very exciting initiative that's going to be investigating really how disadvantage affects decision-making more broadly. And so what we've done is we've brought together the economists at the University of Sydney, along with a new CI, Professor Nick Glazier from the University um, of Sydney Brain and Mind Centre. He's a psychiatrist, public health specialist. And what we propose to do is to initiate a new research agenda in the cognitive science of disadvantage. This is going to be pioneering work that brings together um, a broad range of disciplines, including behavioral economics, neuroscience, experimental design, cognition, etc. And the plan is to use that as a framework for thinking about things such as risk taking, self-control, and, and, and actually sleep, all of which affect the way that people make decisions when they're under stress and they're experiencing disadvantage. We'll also be looking at the financial choices that people make over the life course um, and really drilling down into people's experiences of disadvantage. The thing that struck me in uh, participating in some of the discussions around the people area was that it also is a unique opportunity to look at how individual factors within a person might be part of the explanatory mechanisms that might 
explain why things change. I mean, if you think about building self-regulatory capability of people, I really wonder whether there are some common pathways, both in a cognitive science sense, but also in terms of psychological mechanisms that might explain improvement and perhaps even relapse to, you know, not doing quite so well. I wonder if we could just now move on to the PLACES program. This was another area that I thought caught a lot of people's attention at the research retreat. A place-based perspective on disadvantage is really interesting and it can help us to understand why particular places resist solutions to disadvantage that have been proven elsewhere. And I guess what goes along with this, what are the features of places that enable change to occur as well in a positive sense? Uh, I wonder if we could just reflect for a moment, both of us, all of us really, on this PLACES program and what it might bring. Janine, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, look, I'm particularly excited about this new program. So the centre has the three programs, people, places and opportunities. In some ways, the people and opportunities programs are not too dissimilar to what we've been doing in the previous centre, but places is really a a new focus for us. And I think it, it fits very nicely with what we want to do. The reason I'm particularly excited about it is that I think it's become clear through the work of our, our previous work, that there's really no such thing as an average person. When, when it comes to social disadvantage, we need to know a lot about the specific circumstances and the places or the context in which they live. So that that's a really important insight. And I think the Places Program is where we will build on that insight to really drill down into what it is about particular geographical and social spaces um, that make disadvantage particularly acute in some cases, or as you say, which provide opportunities to move people out. I guess the other thing I would say about the PLACES program is that it fits very well with a life course approach. And the life course perspective or theory underlies a lot of what we're doing in the centre. And one of the key principles in a life course approach is the importance of context and environment in shaping people's movement through the life course, the transitions they go through, and their experience of those transitions. So it, it, it fills a number of, of roles for us. Yeah, one, one thing to keep in mind also is that places evolve over a life course as well, and they're not static. And so that when you think about the development of people and the development of contexts, they're all potentially changing uh, at the same time. And uh, when you get new populations of people coming into an area and a place that was uh, extremely disadvantaged for one reason or another can become a more popular place to live and the dynamics start to change. Deb, did you have any thoughts about the places work? Well, I... The opportunity there? I think it's, it's a fabulous addition to the research program of the center. We want to really understand what disadvantage does to people and and how it shapes their life chances. And of course, it's, it's a ridiculous notion to think that people are operating in a vacuum. Of course, they're not. They're operating in places and in houses and in families and in communities. Systems. And in systems. And so being able to study the impact of that context specifically, using methodologies that are really designed to understand place-based disadvantage, 
is a huge opportunity for supporting the work of the rest of the centre. One of the things that struck me also about the place-based conversation is, you know, the assumption that we can take evidence-based practices that have been shown to work in a particular location and just simply transport it to a new place is fraught with challenges and difficulties because change has to be owned and embraced and to be contextually relevant and seen as being meaningful to people who live in particular places and one of the things that I like about the work that's evolving is how this end user input is being taken into with notions such as co-design of interventions that fit a particular place. So I wonder if we could just move on now to the Opportunities Research Program. This is really about moving beyond just the individual, isn't it? It's about taking a wider view of opportunity structures around them, the institutions and the systems that either limit or enhance potential pathways out of disadvantage. Janine, perhaps if you could lead off just thinking about the Opportunities Program and what this will bring to the Life Course Centre. Yes, thanks, Matt. So I'll be leading the Opportunities work, and as a sociologist, this program fits very well with my disciplinary training and background. And I think what, what my vision for the Opportunities Program is is that we will lift our gaze above looking at people, specific people, to looking at how systems and structures and institutions, and I use those terms interchangeably, but how they shape the opportunities that people have. And so I wouldn't want all of the, the work in the Life Course Centre to, to focus on how we change people's behaviour and how we change people to fit existing systems or opportunity structures. I really hope that a portion of the work will focus on those, those systems themselves and look at how we might change them. And of course, that's a much more difficult and more challenging approach in many ways. And there'll be a lot of overlap across these three programs. But I think this program gives us an opportunity to keep that on the radar that we, as well as empowering people to behave differently and to take up opportunities, we also need to look at what we can do to shape those opportunities themselves. Well, could I just add there that one of the things that really strikes me about human capability is that there are some people in this world who become very skilled at advocacy and changing systems. And we have to also see that one of the greatest allies for systems level change is to mobilise folk and to give people a voice who are disenfranchised. And I suppose if you think about what changes politicians' minds to do with what they invest in or priorities, sometimes powerful personal narratives to do with their journey in place can be really influential in changing systems. So it's this dynamic interaction between the structural systemic things that are you know based on systems and the law and that kind of thing and empowering people and places to not be static recipients of the systems that they live in. What, what are your thoughts about that, either Deb or, or Janine? From my perspective, the opportunities, if you can change the opportunities, that's where you get the biggest bang for the buck, right? And, and it's the hard stuff. You know, I, I once spoke to a secretary of education who said to me, well, 
you know, I know how to fix a school. What I don't know how to do is fix a school system. And, and that really is very challenging, but you, could, you can see the benefits of making progress in opening up opportunities for people. And, you know, we've, we've written about this in the center. What we've seen with COVID-19 were, were, were systems, a number of what I would call systems or institutions change very rapidly. And so childcare was made free for a while. Job telehealth. seeker telehealth. was improved. Homelessness. Telehealth. So it is possible. It is challenging, um, but it is possible. And um, so I think I think this is a really unique moment to kind of shift our attention to those systems. And COVID nineteen perhaps gives us a catalyst for saying, well, it's perhaps not as hard as we thought. We we just need to direct our attention in particular ways. So maybe this is a unique moment that we can really have have some some real impact look one of the things uh, apart from the overarching themes of the programs of work that are going to go on in the uh, in the life course center i wonder if we could just reflect for a moment on whether there are any particularly kind of interesting topics that have caught your imagination or that you see as potential innovations or collaborations or new opportunities that if we have the opportunity to support might be both exciting and contribute to solving this problem? So I'd like to weigh in with one, and that is the initiative that we have around sleep. So as a, as a social scientist, as an economist, I hadn't really ever thought very much about sleep. And it seemed like a bit of a peripheral sort of topic. But if you ask... Unless you suffer from sleep deprivation. Or unless you're the parent of a <laughs> young you know. child. Right. And any yep. parent that you speak to completely understands that sleep is a, is a constraint on all kinds of things, including good decision making and, you know, living the life you'd like to lead. And it is related to social and economic disadvantage and that the, the quality of the sleep that we get is certainly related to the to our environment and, and the place where we sleep, whether it's crowded and noisy and comfortable and how much light we're getting. And and there are opportunities to improve things immeasurably for people by sorting out those environmental factors that get in the way of getting good rest, having a sort of good sleep as a psychological resource, and and then making decisions around parenting and, and living a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more on that one, that if you think about just self-care and the importance of sleep to people's self-regulatory capacity to make good decisions and to be responsive to their children, if you're exhausted, overwhelmed, and you're living in a toxic sleep environment, how difficult is that? Uh, Janine, anything that's really exciting you at the moment? Well, I was thinking of sleep when you asked that question. So, yes, I'm very excited about that project. I think there'll be a number of projects in that in that area. I suppose thinking more broadly, though, one of the things that I am pleased with the new centre is that we're bringing in a whole range of new methodological expertise. And so a number of the projects will have analyses based on large-scale quantitative data, so surveys that collect information about people over time but we're also bringing in some ethnographic and qualitative experts and these are the people who go into the communities and do the one-on-one interviews and in-depth conversations 
not only does that produce really rich data that you don't get from those more structured surveys, but I think it will be a really powerful tool for our research translation. And we know that the stories of real people's real lives can be really quite powerful for getting the attention of politicians and the public. So we have a number of experts and I think in that sort of field, those those that expertise will, will be across a number of different projects, including sleep, some of the sleep projects. So I'm very excited about the new methods that we're bringing in. All right. Can I tell you what I'm excited about? Because, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> because as a clinical psychologist and really as a prevention scientist as well, I'm an interventionist at heart and that the idea of building and testing new interventions that are going to make a difference is, is exciting to me. And one of the things that, you know, I feel we are moving into increasingly is interventions that are enhanced in a digital age. There has to be something that we're doing differently about increasing the reach of interventions when COVID has pretty much kicked us into a world where people are much more open and and reliant on uh, digital solutions. The thing is that we need to develop high-quality evidence-based ways of reaching many more people with low-intensity, lower-cost interventions that still have a substantial impact. And I mean, what I'd like to see in some ways is the recognition that the intervention world focusing on social disadvantage can't ignore the fact that we're living in a broader global environment where the UN's put out some major challenges for everyone to do with the sustainable development goals. And that in some ways, many of the things that we are seeking to change in terms of people and places and opportunities speak to different of these uh, sustainable development goals. So I would like to see work be progressed within the centre that tries to integrate synergistically a number of different outcomes. And there may be some common pathways that lead to improvement, not just in social disadvantage, but also things like educational opportunities, living in a violence-free home, employment opportunities. And if the world of intervention can do the clever things, which is not only develop and test the efficacy of things, but look at the mechanisms that explain those improvements, the moderators of those intervention effects, so we can identify who responds and who doesn't. I think we'll have made a a significant contribution to the discourse about how we address the issue of social disadvantage. Okay, so... I know it's the early days in the Life Course Centre now, but I was hoping to just have a little bit of a, a, a glance forward at where we're heading and, and perhaps you know, what we see as the, the next or the most immediate steps that we might need to be taking. Janine, what are your thoughts as Director of the Centre of the immediate short-term challenges? Well, there's a whole range of things that we need to do. As you say, we're in the very early days, although we've been planning this new centre for some time. But I think now following the retreat, which you know was such a, a big success in bringing people together, a lot of ideas for um, research came out of that retreat. And oh, tremendous we want to harness that ideas. momentum and get some of those projects off the ground. So... I guess the next six months or so will be very important to follow up and get those teams together to make sure that that work gets underway. I think that that's a major priority for us. 
there's, there's of course, other things we need to do in a centre like this, recruitment of postdocs and students. So there's some operational things that we need to focus on. But in terms of the research, it's really now time to to get off the ground um, with some of those new projects. And Deb, your thoughts on immediate next challenges? So I would agree with that. I think the immediate next challenge is harnessing the energy and the creativity that was sort of set forth out of the retreat. One of the challenges that we have, of course, is that we're working in ways that we've never had to work before. We were not able to be fully face-to-face. Many of the people who we are hoping will ultimately work together across disciplines and parts of the center haven't actually physically met. And so using the technology to our advantage to, to be clever about the way we construct research networks and have online research seminars to make sure that people remain connected, even though we're going to be physically distanced for some time. Look, right at this point, if you think about just uh, wrapping this up, I wonder if there are any kind of big ticket messages that right now that we think government should be paying attention to. Is there anything that stands out to either of you? Well, I guess just going back to your previous comment too, Matt, about the next challenges, you know, we have brought all of our research teams together. One thing I want to do, of course, as director and Matt, as Research Linkages Portfolio Leader, you'll be involved in this, is reach out to our partners. So now that we've got some terrific ideas around research that we think we could do, I think it's now time to go back to our partners and say, how does this fit with your priorities and your plans and challenges? So I really hope that we'll be able to revisit some of the conversations we've had with our partners. And we've got government, we've got non-government organisations, we've got business, we've got a, you know, a couple of philanthropic agencies. So we need to then be now be kind of talking to them about our next steps as well. And the, and the, policy, the policy implications of the work. And I think it's particularly work. important, you know, for that research translation phase to make sure that we are working on the, the priority areas that they're most interested in. Yeah, which are not always the most important priority areas to solve the problem. But anyway, <laughs> Deb, your final word. So I would point to something which we actually initiated in the uh, initial LCC, and that's the role of data integration and data access. We took a, a real leadership role, I think, in integrating data in interesting ways and making it available. And there's a lot of work to be done, but there's enormous power in that, particularly as we've expanded the disciplinary base. We've, we've added new insights about other data that we could bring to bear on the problem. And, and we've also introduced some you know, new methodology. So as Janine said, we're all really excited about the ethnography. But at the other end, we also have data science. And it's, it's almost like soup to nuts in a way. I mean, it's kind of, they must be on opposite ends of some spectrum. And then I would also point to just the potential for thinking about new ways of working with communities. If we could take a a real community focus, co-design, think about the things that impede communities from sort of determining their own futures, that would be really powerful, I think, in changing people's life chances. 
And of course, communities differ enormously in their capacity to engage in this process. And we have to see it as a developmental set of capabilities at a community level. Well, thank you so much for your time, Janine and Deb, and for joining me once again. This was a very enjoyable discussion, and I look forward to being part and watching the progress of the Life Course Centre in the coming years. It's a really exciting time, and the centre is a wonderful showcase of what can be achieved by bringing together the diversity of leading researchers to collectively tackle with a shared vision some of the biggest problems in society today. And that's it for the final episode of Families Under Pressure. I've really enjoyed presenting this podcast series uh, to you and the Life Course Centre will be back with a new podcast series in the near future. I'm Professor Matt Sanders and I hope you can join us then.